Welcome to Integrated Brain Health. My name is Dr. Robert Coben. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and am board certified in QEG technology and neuromodulation. This is our Neuroscience Rounds podcast. You will get a glimpse into our training programs where we talk about neuroscience, technology, neurofeedback, neuropsychology, and other related matters. We hope this helps with your knowledge base and ability to intervene and help patients successfully. On to the podcast. Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Rob Coben. I am a neuropsychologist and I'm a senior fellow of the Biofeedback Certification International Alliance. I've been in the field of neurofeedback for uh, almost 20 years now. Uh, My initial training was 20 years ago. And um, what I'm going to be doing over the next couple months is doing a podcast of a review course for BCIA uh, certification in neurofeedback training. So today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to cover module one um, and the review material contained uh, within that, um, which is basically an introduction and perspective of the field of neurofeedback. Um, and some basic principles and learning ideas and, and theories that people have had approaches to neurofeedback training. Um, we will go through a module about every two weeks. There's 10 modules all together, and this covers some of the background training for the neurofeedback certification exam and didactic coursework. Uh, this is not meant to replace actually studying, taking the exam, getting practical experience. It's just a review. Um, Hopefully this will be interesting for some that go through this process, but it may also have a general interest for the field or others outside of the field that are interested in learning more about neurofeedback. Um, So we will get started um, on this. Um, Just because I express an opinion does not mean it's the opinion of the BCIA organization or any organization within the field of neurofeedback, just to clarify all that. So essentially, uh, we're going to begin with the history and development of EEG biofeedback, which dates back to the history of EEG itself. So hopefully some of you know, but um, Richard Canton um, and uh, uh, Hans Berger is considered uh, the originator uh, Richard Canton in 1875, sensing active, mental activity, and Hans Berger then in 1924 as actually being the first person to record EEG from the scalp of a human being. Um, the field of neurofeedback then took about 20 or I'm sorry, about 40 years or so after that uh, to be created. Um, it is widely um, considered. Uh, the father or birth of neurofeedback with Barry Sturman, who is a sleep researcher at UCLA uh, Medical Center, and he was studying sleep in cats. And what he found in measuring their EEGs is when they sleep, they elicited what's called a sensory motor rhythm, which is a frequency in the EEG 
bursts of it from 12 to 15 hertz over the motor cortex only. Uh, in EEG placement terminology, that would be C3, CZ, C4, etc. Um, and they theorized that if you could um, train people to deliver more of this rhythm when they're not sleeping, that they would get into a relaxed state and their brain uh, would function better. Well, coincidentally, uh, there were, uh, as the story goes, there were pilots uh, in the armed services that were exposed to jet fuels. And as a result, they would have seizures. So um, Dr. Sermon was asked, you know, could this technology have anything to, to do with this? And um, he then found out that if you exposed uh, animals uh, to these toxins and then train their sensory motor rhythm, that the seizures became less likely. And then this technology eventually got transferred to human applications and has been used to uh, treat seizure disorders as well. That's kind of the birth and the story as it goes. About the same time in the late 60s, Joe Camilla, working at the University of Chicago, uh, was also working on experiments in terms of alpha waves and anxiety, and he was the first to show that uh, human beings could learn to control and augment their alpha activity, and that reduced anxiety. Um, so these two primary discoveries uh, form the basis, really, for the field that we know today. Um, as we move on, we're going to talk about some of the pioneers in the field and their differing approaches. Um, so we'll start with Barry Sturman himself um, and his major student, Joel Lubar, um, and one of his other students, Margaret Ayers, in what's termed the neuropsychological arousal model. So basically, the notion is using SMR training, which is what they've advocated for decades, um, some of them until recently, uh, and still do, it is basically saying that you know human beings are largely either hypo or hyper-aroused, um, and in cases of being hyper-aroused, like seizures or hyperactivity or things of that nature, if you train them to calm their brains, that's essentially the sensory motor rhythm because that's the rhythm of sleep, um, that that will improve their functioning. So um, Dr. Lubar took this into um, study of ADHD in children um, and is well known for doing research in this area over decades to show that uh, neurofeedback training can be a very beneficial treatment for cases of diagnosis, ca diagnosed cases of ADHD. And there's been mounds of research in this direction ever since. And in fact, the two areas they worked in, seizure disorders with Dr. Sturman and ADHD with Dr. Lubar, are probably the two most empirically uh, validated applications of neurofeedback that we have today. Uh, Margaret Ayers also used their technology and uh, in California treated many different types of patients, but helped a lot with people with traumatic brain injuries and in comatose states to emerge from those states, which was a very interesting early application. The next phase in the development came from Joe Camilla's initial work and the extension of that by Tom Budzinski in the 70s at Stanford University, where again, they were working with the alpha rhythm and seeing how that could enhance 
um, people's ability to deal with anxiety um, and showed that in fact it could. Um, Tom, Dr. Baditsky's work uh, later extended this with something called photic training where you have light stimulation devices that could actually elicit the alpha rhythm um, and, they, and he worked on diminishing anxiety as well as enhancing cognitive abilities um, in individuals as they age. Extremely interesting application because there are newer technologies doing very similar things um, to this day um, and with hope in the field of treating dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and Parkinson's disease for such issues. Uh, the next general model and trend was the QEG medical perspective, which is the approach that we tend to take in our work. Um, the names associated with this include Jay Gunkelman and Robert Thatcher. And the basic idea here is that if you gather a 19-channel EEG and you compare it to a QEG database and you find strengths and limitations, um, if you target those limitations, in other words, excess theta or excess alpha activity in certain regions of the brain, if you target those specifically, that your neurofeedback um, may be more efficacious and may be more effect effective and quick in its um, delivery. Um, it's a theory that makes sense to a lot of us uh, and makes sense to us, and we've followed this approach for decades now. Um, surprisingly, there's very little research to validate this, actually, um, although there are a handful of studies and more emerging, including some of our own, that have shown if you compared this to just a symptom-based approach, uh, that in many cases it is more effective, but not always. Um, so we need to keep that in mind. Uh, the next uh, general movement in the field uh, called the regulatory systems model or arousal model of training uh, headed by Siegfried and Susan Othmer as the originators of the model uh, says that uh, QEGs are not useful in their model and in fact they're taking people where they are based on their arousal levels. So in other words, if someone is hyper aroused like they're hyperactive or they're moving around a lot or they're impulsive or they have anxiety, then their theory is that they should be, uh, neurofeedback should be used to calm them. If they have hypoarousal, then the, like depression or um, other similar related problems of passivity and inactivity, then the model follows that they should be, neurofeedback should seek to arouse them. And the general idea was that you originally, that you would train at C4 in the right hemisphere to diminish hyperarousal, and you would train at C3 in the left hemisphere to enhance hypoarousal. And there's been a lot of offshoots of this type of intervention. And in fact, these principles are still with us today. If generally, if we train the right hemisphere, people calm down. And generally speaking, if we train the left hemisphere, people get more excitable. Um, so very, very sound theories. Um, the Othmers have moved their theories into training what we call ultra-low frequency EEG under one hertz. Um, and there are strong advocates of this approach of neurofeedback as there are in many others. Uh, the next general model is that of the alpha-theta model started by Elmer Green, um, who worked out of Menninger's in Kansas, uh, and then promulgated by uh, Gene Penniston and even Nancy White 
in later years. Uh, the most famous work to come out of this is the um, Peniston work, where they did research in substance abuse, and they basically showed that they could in, improve or decrease the relapse rate in alcoholics and drug abusers if they delivered this type of neurofeedback uh, during their inpatient treatment stay. Um, very significant changes, in fact. Um, and ba the basic idea is that you're training to enhance someone's alpha and theta activity, which would lead to greater emotional awareness and awareness of themselves, which would then help in their treatment and recovery and emotional well-being. This has also been used in PTSD, as drug abuse and PTSD do ever overlap in many cases. Uh, the next general approach is what's called the profound attention model from Adam Crane and Les Femi. Adam Crane uh, was a very interesting man who actually did my initial neurofeedback training 20 years ago in New York. And um, their basic idea was the formation of what we now call, what they called synchrony, what we now call coherence training. And that is that if you take two sensors, two recordings of the EEG, and you show them or you train someone to deliver the same activity near the same time, in other words, you enhance their synchrony, they were generally working with the alpha rhythm, but you can do this in any frequency band, that their abilities will improve. And generally, they were focused on attention and improving attention. But you can, we've learned since then, and our research supports this, that you can train um, over various areas of the brain related to learning disabilities, related to autism, enhance coherence or connectivity, and people will reduce their symptoms or improve their learning, attention, etc. So a very sound model of treatment. Les Femi and his wife also um, did synchrony training with couples to improve their kind of uh, relatedness or synchrony with each other. Uh, the next approach is that what's called the nonlinear dynamical systems approach by Valdine Brown, um, a fairly controversial approach where, but the science behind it is not. Basically, his theory is that the brain is in a state of entropy, in a state of chaos or disorganization. And as neurofeedback helps us regulate our brains better, that these, this variability or entropy reduces. And in fact, that's true. In all types of neurofeedback, when improvements are made, there are reductions in variability that you can see in the data from those sessions. So what he did is he developed a system where you train at C3 and C4 simultaneously, and the computer delivers feedback in a way to help you reduce your entropy or variability. So there is no control over the system by the therapist. It's controlled entirely through the computer and machine learning. Um, there is some controversy about this because as therapists, you know, we want to be in charge of what's happening with our clients. Um, and if things move in a direction that's not desirable, we want to be able to stop that or um, curtail that or change that in some way. In this system, that's not possible. Uh, this system is now called the neurooptimal system, and it's also used by uh, clinicians with sometimes uh, limited training in biofeedback, neurofeedback in general, 
and even in mental health treatment in general. So um, as licensed psychologists and professionals, we support BCIA's approach that clearly people that do this training, we advocate that they become board certified and go through that process. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing such a podcast. And we also highly uh, recommend that if they're treating uh, mental health problems or medical problems or other related problems, that they need to be licensed in those areas of practice. That's very, very important. And follow state and other ethical, legal, ethical and legal regulations. Uh, the next major approach was that of Anna Wise, um, related to what's called the high performance mind, where they would train someone to become more aware of their own EEG, where you would actually look at the screen, see your EEG, learn to control it, learn to understand the dynamics. Um, and this became the cornerstone for what's now called the peak performance movement in using neurofeedback to help top-notch business executives, athletes, etc. The next general approach is that of what we call Z-score training. And this was initiated by Tom Kalora and Robert Thatcher. And basically they theorized that if you took the QEG data and actually utilized that information during live neurofeedback training and train someone towards normal, quote unquote, in the database, that that would improve their functioning. And there had been applications of this using four channels, using 19 channels of EEG to train uh, towards a Z of zero or a normal value. Um, there is, again, uh, some distractors from this approach, uh, part of which is we don't want to train people towards the average of a recording done at rest when people isn't, aren't doing anything. We want, when we want to train people to function better in everyday life. Um, but um, there is also beginning evidence that this can help people. So we want to support future research to determine in what circumstances this might be the best approach as well. Along with this approach is something called Loretta training and Loretta Z-score training, where you can train the source of the surface of EEG activity as well. The next two major approaches are what we generally term neurostimulation approaches. Uh, initially started by Len Oaks with the Lens system, low energy neurofeedback system. And basically what this does is it does neurofeedback, but it also applies a low level magnetic stimulation into the brain to foster changes and to encourage those changes. In all other types of neurofeedback that we've discussed up till now, there is no um, causative change to the brain. The person is changing their own brain by being motivated uh, based on the feedback they get. In these neurostimulation approaches, there, there are inputs, magnetic, electrical, otherwise, that provide stimulation into the brain to facilitate change. Um, Nick Dogris, who started a company called Neuro, approach called Neurofield, uh, is sort of the modern version of this, where they use things like RTMS and uh, electrocranial stimulation to elicit changes in the brain and then use uh, our typical neurofeedback approaches to solidify those changes and allow um, maintenance, long-term changes to ensue. So that's our basic review. 
as you can see, there are lots of ways to skin the cat here. <laughs> Excuse the pun and joke back to Barry Sturman's work. Um, but there are a lot of ways of approaching neurofeedback and a lot of ways that help people. And I think the goal of future research is determine what might be the best in what circumstances. Module one of this training also includes applications of learning theory. Um, the major theory of neurofeedback and how it works is that it is learning. We are facilitating learning in the brain. We are following behavioral modification principles, but towards brain activity instead of behavior. Um, and that as we understand operating classical conditioning based on behavior modification principles, that should help us understand neurofeedback training. So it's very important for anyone in the field to understand those basic ideas. Um, and we certainly refer you back to studies of operant conditioning started by um, B.F. Skinner and um, carried on by many, many other researchers, um, understanding uh, reinforcement principles and at what rates uh, behavior gets reinforced. Typically, the 70 to 75 percent reinforcement rate is considered the standard in the field, um, but there are certainly uh, times when other uh, approaches can be applied. But in the neurofeedback training, we need to see learning. So you should be able to demonstrate, if your treatment is working, that over session by session, people are actually changing their brain activity. Um, there's also the concept of optimal training and duration of training. And uh, depending on the approach, that may vary. And then the notion of classical conditioning of pairing a stimulus with a response, um, which is very important as well. Um, so it's, it's incumbent upon anyone studying in the field to learn those learning theories and to learn neuroanatomy and underlying principles of how the brain works in terms of different brain regions that might be at play here. For example, the alpha rhythm is not generated in the cortex, it's generated in the thalamus and is promulgated to the cortex. And there are many such occurrences, including this. Um, so I hope this has been beneficial as a review for some people. Um, our next uh, visit will probably be in a couple weeks from now when we'll get into module number two, which deals with basic neuroanatomy and physiology. Um, Okay, signing off for now. Again, my name is Rob Coben. If you have any questions, you can feel free to reach out to us at integrainbrainhealth.com and you can contact us at our uh, direct administrative email or personal emails uh, and phone numbers. All right, I hope everyone has a great day. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to subscribe to the Neuroscience Rounds podcast for future episodes. You might also enjoy our sister podcast, Let's Head On, with myself and Dr. Ann Stevens, where we discuss the interaction between neuroscience, neuropsychology, and physical and mental well-being. Please feel free to reach out to us at integratebrainhealth.com.